Hi, on the 5th and 6th of June, 2024, I'll be speaking at the largest AI event in Asia, Super AI in Singapore, at the iconic Marina Bay Sands. Alongside brilliant minds like Edward Snowden, Benedict Devon, and Balaji Srinivasan, I'll be on a stage exploring the extraordinary potential of AI and the profound change it represents, not just for financial markets, but also for the world as we know it. With over 5,000 attendees and over 150 side events, Singapore will become a vibrant hub for a full week from the 3rd and 9th of June. Visit superai.com to register and join me with 20% off tickets using the code REALVISION. Use the link in the description and I'll see you there. It's going to be incredible. Is bond volatility here to stay? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Tavi Costa, macro strategist at Crestcat Capital. Hi, Tavi. It's great to see you. Hi, Maggie. Uh, happy New Year. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, absolutely. Happy New Year to you, too. A uh, little bit of a rough start for the market, so mixed bag for stocks. We had the Dow and Russell up, but NASDAQ and S&P lower once again. I think it's going on 5 for the Nasdaq now, the 10-year flirting with that 4% level again, and the dollar gave up some ground. You know, as we look across, I don't think this stock pullback is surprising to anyone, Tavi, but what's your thesis as we head into 2024? How are you thinking about these markets? No, it, it's interesting. The folks that were uh, absolutely nailed in, in 2022 uh, are also the same people that got everything almost completely wrong in 2023. And the opposite goes to the crowd that got it completely wrong in 2022 and now got it right in 2023. And the question is, which year was the right one? If you ask me, I really think that the uh, the market structure that we had in 2022 is is likely to be uh, repeating itself over time. I, I, I find it highly unlikely that value stocks will not be performing better than growth, growth stocks. I think that the treasury market will continue to be uh, not only at a higher volatility, but also with higher yields overall across the entire structure of the yield curve. Um, I think there's a lot of the interesting things to be looking at in the markets for 2024. Uh, the steepening of the yield curve is, is one main uh, probably uh, positioning that uh, I believe that that could potentially work uh, in terms of, you know, in average, we tend to see two versus 10 uh, spreads. Uh, uh, steepen for about 300 basis points. I think that's uh, that's highly likely, especially if we have more of a stagflationary crisis or even uh, more of a deflationary one. That's the beauty of the trade is really betting on a hard landing scenario. Um, and and potentially if the, if the hard landing doesn't happen yet, that's that's the way you can be wrong in that trade. It's not my view. Um, and the profusion of macro indicators that we have that are really showing and suggesting that uh, the likelihood of a recession ahead, and you know, risky assets, particularly the um, I would say the the Mag Seven, the Magnificent Seven, have completely ignored those things, uh, and I don't think that that's the right approach here for an investor. So that hasn't changed. I don't see the point of really buying technology stocks and all those things that are so expensive, while you have uh, a whole realm of hard assets and things that are linked to hard assets that can. They offer not 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 only a much better value proposition, but also the likelihood of the entering secular moves that can change the whole environment in a large way. So I remain very focused in 
some niche areas of the market. I think metals and mining can do very well. Um, I continue to say this because I, I, I continue to find a lot of distress opportunities in that part of the market. And um, those are those are the ones that, um, it, you know, uh, get me excited on on my daily basis because I, I, I don't find a lot of those things in a, such a frothy environment. So um, and another one that I think it's going to be a very important uh, chart or, or even idea for 2024 is emerging markets overall. It's emerging markets have been so resilient despite all the things that have been happening, um, even you know the tightening of monetary conditions and all sorts of things. And still, you look at emerging markets, particularly the ones that have resource uh, exposure, uh, have been doing so well. I think that's a real trend. And emerging market currencies are so close from breaking out from a major uh, declining trend. Uh, and I think that that's going to be an important uh, part of the, our aspect of 2024 as we enter the year. A lot of great stuff in there. Let's unpack some of it. So is you, the resource play, the hard asset play, contingent upon the fact that we will see a recession? Um, I don't think necessarily. I mean, the, the, the situation that we had in the last month is a great example of why it shouldn't. Um, although it is my view that we will in my base case. I don't think you have to have a recession. I mean, if we have a what I call a banana banana republic type of market where central banks just go back to easing uh, very, very ultra easing policies um, to save the economy, you know, the market can do well. And, and if that's the case, it wouldn't surprise me if hard assets uh, not only outperform financial assets, but, uh, you know, may get into more of a, a bubble territory at, in, in five to 10 years. That's that's my opinion. I, I think there is a much more of a potential for that to happen than the continuation of us valuing businesses that are already expensive uh, at, at, you know, crazy levels just because uh, inflation is, is, is running really hot. But I and the reason for that is because at some point you have to discount things according to the cost of capital and if this environment I just presented to you would, would likely uh, drive cost of capital much higher, which is kind of what we saw in 2022. So, you know, my view is 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 now I'm, I'm I, I think that that part of the market is kind of um, you know why even bother with that? <laughs> That's just yeah. my so it's a, so it's a relative performance. If if we have a recession, you like the safe haven play of of um, of natural resources. If the economy is doing well interest rates will be higher and the cost of capital will be higher. So you you just like the valuations of some of the names? I do. And I, I if you don't find distress opportunities in technology. Let's start it that way. You, there, there are no distress opportunities there. So, no, I like things not to be contrarian for a contrarian sake, but if there is enough reasons, macro reasons to really support a thesis to take a contrarian view, I love those things. And I think that hard assets certainly is one of them. And you may say, well, I've seen other people talk about hard assets. Yeah. But you look at pension funds, for instance, they have basically zero allocation to hard as assets today. What if they change? Uh, central banks. Central banks used to own hard assets, gold specifically, used to make up about 80% of their balance sheet. Today is about 20%. What if that changes again? Um, and so those are potential for changes in dynamic of capital flows that could be really uh, meaningful for asset classes like mining industry or or the energy space or agricultural businesses and other things. And so, uh, and one more point that you asked the question regarding uh, the recession uh, being, you know, really a, a huge part of the thesis on only hard assets. 
Now, remember what happened less than a month ago with the Fed changing its policy stance recently and, and basically now talking about cutting interest rates and other mm -hmm. things and shifting away from inflation being a problem to now worry maybe even uh, employment could be a problem and other things in the labor markets. Um, which to me was a takeaway from the Fed minutes was an, uh, one of the important sentences there, uh, concern about the labor markets overall. And if you think about that itself, you know, and the Fed changing their tune uh, right now, it's, you know, to me, you know, everything went up in, in, in that in, in, on the back of those, those, uh, that shift. And so, you know, that could happen again. But um, I think one important aspect of 2024 that could change from 2023 is maybe this leadership from mega caps. You know, I, I don't think that's sustainable, but I, you know, I wish I had the, the crystal ball to know when it's going to change. But again, why even bother with that? <laughs> There's better yeah. things to do. So. Yeah. Yeah. Your point about, you know, the, the, the valuation on some of the techs is something that concerned people all last year, which is why a lot of people were on the sideline and missed that big rally at the end of the year. I think that kind of haunts people. Um, you know, that, that kind of defied expectations. Do you think that was just an overshoot for technology? You don't buy the idea that there's sort of, you know, some AI productivity wave and um, technological changes that are coming that might keep some momentum in these names. Two points. Um, the point of staying on the sidelines and missing an upside in the market is an important one. I was never saying stay on the sidelines. I've been happily invested in, in things in general and just not invested in tech at all. Um, and some of the things that we invested in mining have done really well. And the reason for that is not tracking GDX or GDXJ or ETFs. You can buy private businesses trading for one-time free cash flow today. Uh, and they their businesses did very well in the last year. And so you know, we've been doing a lot of that recently ourselves. Uh, the other, um, you know, the other thing is, um, I, I personally, I think that the the technology uh, is space in terms of the 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 uh, the changes in terms of the technology overall um, are incredible advancements, uh, and I, I continue to think that way. I just don't understand very well um, why. Well, I guess I understand partially why the mega caps are doing better than the others. They do have first access to most of those things, and um, and they've been doing a lot of that. And thinking just about uh, how much growth they have potentially relative to small caps, it to me is a no-brainer to own small caps because I don't understand the limited growth potential for most of the large cap names overall. To me, it seems quite limited. And on top of that, well, one of the things I noticed in 2023, which was a big um, takeaway for me, has been this dynamics in CapEx. Um, and, you know, technology companies were, back in the days, used to be companies that don't spend a lot of capital uh, and have incredible margins and make a ton of money. Mm -hmm. um, what changed this year is that if you look at the uh, who spent most of the CapEx in 2023 was actually technology. And so AI is great and it will make huge changes, but we got to understand that that's capital intensive and most of the mega caps are having to spend more and more capital to generate less and less growth. And so at what point do we see multiples getting re-rated because of that aspect? And anything that requires higher uh, capital uh, uh, to generate growth 
uh, usually tends to be called uh, cyclical businesses because mm-hmm. that's the access for capital is is what makes that business more cyclical. And so, you know, is that the case? Does that mean technology is becoming more cyclical over time as well? It could be. Um, so, yeah. So those are my takeaways from from that dynamic. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I think we all know by now, things are pretty fucked out there for most of us. You see, whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series, How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again, March 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holds barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need to unfuck your future. It just costs a dollar to join Real Vision to get access to all of this content. Go to realvision.com forward slash the future. I'll see you there. Let's unfuck your future together. That's a really, really interesting point, Tavi. And we are going to be getting those earnings reports this month. Um, The tech is a little bit toward the end of the month, but that's going to be really interesting to hear what they say about that CapEx spending and how investors react to that, because you're right, it would be a very different scenario. Um, It's interesting that you're bringing up the CapEx spend because we keep, all roads kind of lead back to bonds and bond yields and that volatility that we saw. You mentioned that you do think we're in for increased bond volatility. Ash sat down with Jurian Timmer today, the director of global research at Fidelity Investments. He also thinks that we're in a sort of new era uh, for bonds at, when it comes to volatility. Let's have a listen to that. So we had the rare occurrence of not only losses in 2022, but uh, in 2021, sorry, and losses in 2022. And as of October of last year, which was just two months ago, we were on schedule or on, on track to have a extremely rare, if not unprecedented, third year in a row of negative bond returns. But that massive rally at the end of the year kind of saved us from that. So uh, bonds actually ended up returning plus 3% in 2023. Uh, but bonds were at the center of the storm. And, you know, I think in my view, we've gone, we're going from an era that we would call um, the great moderation. So low inflation, falling inflation, low interest rates, low volatility, so the 2000s to 2010s were a period of what we call the great moderation. Um, I think we're now in a period um, that some people are calling fiscal dominance. And you think about it, you think what the government is doing, the deficits it's running, 6 7% of GDP at, during a period of expansion and you know, uh, full employment, more or less, uh, is really not what you know Keynes had in mind when he came out with Keynesian fiscal policy. You're supposed to run deficits when the economy is in the tank, not when it's at, at or above capacity. And but so you know this is this is the the order of the day. And I don't see a change in that kind of fiscal dominance anytime soon. Jarian's not only head of global research of Fidelity, he's also a master chartist. Uh, he and Ash covered a lot of ground across both macro and crypto. Really fascinating conversation. You can find the entire chat uh, available for pro members on our website. If you are not a member or you want to upgrade, head over to realvision.com. So, Tavi, how are you thinking about the, this interest rate environment in terms of 
the companies you like? Because some of some of these mining companies, I would think that they are also capital intensive. No. Oh, they are very capital intensive, and I would also point out that they've been terrible businesses for decades. And the only difference is that there are decades that you want to own them. And the main reason for that is because the underlying security that they sell, a hard asset, usually goes up in prices more than cost um, during those decades. And so what you got to get it right is that there is really a big shift in the markets towards more of an inflationary environment. So this is why I focus so much on the macro side of why I believe inflation is more structural today, uh, because I don't think the valuation of those companies are not really reflecting this new era that uh, not only your guests commented on, that we also share the same opinion. And as we see that happening, I think there's going to be re-rating of those companies in a massive way, particularly from not only from a valuation standpoint, but really from the stress value uh, uh, multiples that we have currently. And so, you know, that's to me, that's where the opportunity lies ahead. And I agree with him in a lot of ways. Um, I think inflation is structural because of I've, I've been saying this, the pillars of inflation. And so uh, it really is the, the, of the, the lack of investments in natural resources, which I see it every day in terms of, uh, you know, just running a business that invests in those in those companies. It's, you know, it's really struggling to to see how uh, we're not seeing new projects and new things come online. And metals and mining and energy takes years for you to develop those projects. And so uh, if not, <laughs> I should say decades, depending mm -hmm. on the project. And so uh, that's that's a big change. Um, the reckless amount of fiscal spending, which he touched on, and I would say he was even nice about it. Uh, I, I would point out that uh, instead of calling it a 7% deficit, if you just uh, look at the spending alone, not looking at the revenue, just spending alone, and then take out the interest payments that we're doing, because that's not really inflationary, uh, you're going to find that we're close to 20 plus percent of GDP. And to look back in history, we've never seen these levels of spending. So that's insane. Um, and, you know, not only that, but the labor markets is also another important change. The, the labor market, what we're seeing, the cost of living being higher. Why are we seeing widespread labor strikes? Well, that's, <laughs> the reason for that is because people are not getting paid enough. And if you look at the profitability of most companies today, which are nearly at you know, record levels, the reason for that is because they're not paying enough their employees. That trend might change. Um, and I, I really think it will. And the fourth thing that is even more important than anything I said is deglobalization. You know, deglobalization is, is uh, to me, at the early stages of something a lot worse in terms of uh, the geopolitical risk. And uh, even that is not really pricing commodity prices yet. And um, and so all those, the reshoring, uh, the, the, the uh, countries and, and companies really trying to uh, go away from efficiency of cost, but really trying to secure their logistics. Uh, those things are very important macro ch uh, changes that, that will uh, actually make inflation more structural, in my opinion. Yeah, that's it's the big battle we're having, right? And it's really hard <clears throat> on the on the tail end of all that fiscal to figure out those those lags and and what the real economy is doing. Uh, you mentioned that you think that we're going to have higher higher interest rates, higher, higher bond yields. We're kind of tipping back over four. We got a payroll. We had stronger than expected payroll data today um, from private payrolls and weekly jobless claims. We've got a monthly government number tomorrow. If you think yields are moving higher, how how much higher? What do you see happening to the 10-year? 
Well, I think the 10 year is, you know, was the the, the 10 year uh, a bond in general in, in the US that the treasury was was really uh, overbought, uh, oversold not too long ago. And, and now it got overbought. You know, it's just, mm-hmm. um, I think, I think there is a, the potential to seeing um, uh, my trade on steepening of the yield curve. I think the 10 year is going to drive the way, meaning I think long yields could be the one driving uh, the steepening of the yield curve in a very significant manner. And maybe it's the reemergence of inflation that causes that, you know, studying inflation throughout history. Um, you've seen the chart that I put out of the, the waves of inflation. And that is to me, the more the most important charts, because it's normal to see deceleration of inflation. It's just, um, at some point, given if, if 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 the forces behind it are really structural, then you have uh, a big uh, reacceleration of prices that then causes uh, you know policy making to also adjust for that. So as we see those things happening, there's not really inflation is one side of the problem. The second side of the problem that drives bond yields right now, especially, is the funding issue that we have in the U.S. and all the mm-hmm. developed economies. I mean, I think. Uh, I calculated about $8.2 trillion of treasuries are going to have to be reissued next year. You may, you may say, well, just reissue those in T-bills. Yeah, it's not that simple. It used to be simple like that back in the days. $8.2 trillion is an unprecedented amount of, of treasuries that are going to be reissued. We have to really think this through. And um, Drug Miller was recently mocking Janet Yellen, right, about not issuing treasuries on the long end when rates were very low. What do you think Janet Yellen is going to do if rates drop a little further? She's going to issue 10 years and 20 years and 30 year yields, probably. And so what is that going to do with yields? It's going to probably going to drive yields higher. So it is of my view that, you know, long term yields uh, can probably surprise a lot of people to the upside. How long can they go in terms of how far? You know, I don't know, five and a half percent wouldn't surprise me. Six percent wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, I'm not in the market to know where it's going to be, but it's definitely higher than here, in my opinion. So wow. if that's if that's the that's case, a lot higher. That's a lot higher from here, well, especially at a time when people are, are pricing in easing, Fed easing. Uh, Tavi, you're talking a lot about the funding and we talked about the problem with the enormous debt burden. Are bond vigilantes back? <laughs> um, potentially, they could be back. <laughs> they, they were dead. they were dormant. I want to say dead. They were dormant for a really long time. I think people thought maybe that they were a thing of the past. We started talking about it a little bit in the summer, but then all of a sudden things changed in the second half of the year. Is that something we need to be concerned about? I think you're too nice. I think they were dead. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, no, look, I, I I think that's that's a um, you know that's that's a good question. I, I don't know exactly how to even track that, um, but um, no, I, I I do think that that falls into the idea. I mean, just look at the positioning. Um, Bank of America does a great job looking at positioning of overweight and underweight of, of financial uh, advisors in general. And uh, the question the other day was how much commodities are underweight relative to how much overweight was uh, the bond market. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's astonishing. Uh, and, you know, where do we go from here? Most likely it's it's the same idea of owning hard assets versus uh, financial assets. I, I just think financial assets overall carry so much risk, unnecessary risk. And I don't understand, again, why buy 150 times earnings uh, bank stock when you can buy 
a you know one to uh, five times uh, free cash flow business in a place like Brazil or 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 even in the U.S. Depending on the industry, if you find an energy company today trading at levels that we saw back at the very end of the global financial crisis, and they're not going away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's still going to be business for the next decade or so. Uh, then after that, we can ask questions about uh, the duration of their business, but. Um, I still think that there is there is a lot to go in in, in that front. So, um, but but you know if if you are of my view, uh, where yields you know and, and macro is always like this, right? If you if you you talk to a lot of people, and usually there is one thing that is fundamentally different about the way they think, and it usually has to do in this case either growth uh, and contraction of the economy, or uh, has to do with inflation versus deflation, and then. Macro thinkers extrapolate from that, right? But so in my case, if I'm a more in the inflation camp being structural, obviously I have a view about cost of capital being higher. That means I have a bearish view and a lot of things are expensive. That means I also have a bearish view on growth versus value. That means I probably have a very long view about emerging markets versus developed economies. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Hi. On the 5th and 6th of June 2024, I'll be speaking at the largest AI event in Asia, Super AI in Singapore, at the iconic Marina Bay Sands. Alongside brilliant minds like Edward Snowden, Benedict Devon and Balaji Srinivasan, I'll be on a stage exploring the extraordinary potential of AI and the profound change it represents, not just for financial markets, but also for the world as we know it. With over five thousand attendees and over 150 side events, Singapore will become a vibrant hub for a full week from the 3rd and 9th of June. Visit superai.com to register and join me with 20% off tickets using the code REALVISION. Use the link in the description and I'll see you there. It's going to be incredible. And we have voices in both of those camps uh, that are that are testing each other's uh, thesis all the time, which is what we like. That's where you can find the value. Um, and if you are if you are listening and are not familiar with the sort of reign of the bond vigilantes, go on our site and use the AI tools to check it out. It'll give you a really nice explanation. So, Tavi, we got some questions. Um, we're going to go a couple minutes extra because we came on a couple minutes late. Um, the macro butler, I love that handle, uh, says, Tavi, is it time to buy the dip in uranium stocks? You know, I think you uh, let me explain how I view the commodity space first. I think the commodity space, when when do you know you're in the bull market? And I'll get to uranium. I think you know you're in a bull market when, first of all, things just start going up in prices, right? But how does the dynamic work in, 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 a, um, in a commodity space? Usually it's in a rotation. It's always, there's always one commodity that is, is, is really uh, surging to the upside. And there's always another commodity that is plunging. And recently was net gas, right? Net gas was plunging recently, um, and, re- and now it's starting to maybe show signs of a bottom. The other side has been orange juice, uranium. All those things were surging recently. So uranium could be, you know, in the, you know, could be could take a little longer for some sort of consolidation. One thing that has been consolidating for a while now is the metal space. The metals, not gold, the other metals. Gold has been in a more of an upward trend recently and trying to break out, which I think will accelerate to the upside in 2024 and will drive, in my view, other things like silver and copper and 
platinum and uh, palladium and other things that haven't really had a, a bull market in a while. But pay attention to that rotation that is happening. And uranium just came from the upside and now went to the downside here recently. Um, and the question really is how long it will stay there. Every commodity will be in a different manner, and it depends on positioning. Uranium was a hot commodity recently, um, and you know, obviously needed to have some um, some uh, uh, take a break for a bit. Energy was also very hot a year or so ago, mm -hmm. and now it, it's taking a break, and it's absolutely normal. Energy could be closer to that than I think uranium, personally. Um, but, you know, that's just my, would I bet against uranium? No way. I think things, everything looks cheap in this, in this uh, hard assets realm. The only thing that doesn't look cheap to me in the hard assets realm is maybe the housing market, but I would also not bet against it. I think it's a big part of the inflationary narrative is, is the fact that we don't have enough houses yeah, and we're going to have to build a lot of things as we build things, materials demand, commodities demand, and so forth. And so, you know, that's what drove the, the housing bubble, right? And actually drove the commodity cycle before that. So um, all that is linked. And so I think, yeah, uranium looks really attractive uh, over the long term, uh, medium term, less attractive than other things. Um, and short term, I would I would look at other things like net gas is starting to look really attractive. Uh, um, oil is something I, I really uh, look at uh, a lot recently because I, I do think oil and energy stocks look really cheap. Um, agricultural commodities have had a, a rough time recently as well. They look even even cheaper potentially. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of it. it I think inflation could reemerge and on the back of all these things doing much better than people expect. Fantastic. I want to squeeze a couple emerging market in. Uh, John asking Tavi, what's going on in Argentina? What opportunities do you see that present good long-term value plays in Argentina? I know you've been bullish Brazil. Are you looking at Argentina? Um, I've been, I've looked at Argentina for, for a long time and, and also a lot of Argentinian projects in the mining, uh, more private and, and small businesses. Uh, and, you know, we've been of the view that things are so cheap in South America that you don't have to take the additional risk of Argentina, really. <laughs> and so uh, we've, we've been of the view of, of deploying capital elsewhere. I think that the political shift is, is, is interesting, although... Um, I would point out that, um, you know, I think I'm less bullish about the potential changes than a lot of people. I would like to see a lot more. But obviously, as we see a lot more, prices are going to be a lot higher. Again, I think it falls back into the question of how much cheaper is Argentina versus other South American countries. And I don't think it's too far off. So, you know, the political premium of owning Argentina now just because of the change in leadership, uh, I don't I don't think really justifies that idea. So um, that is not to say I'm bearish in Argentina at all. I'll no, understood. You're making a distinction, especially in the short term, about and, better opportunities elsewhere. And I, I, although I'm, I'm Brazilian and, and my intuition is to bet against Argentina, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, no, I'm, I'm. You told me I'm, before uh, your in intuition in the past had been to bet against Brazil. <laughs> you were reluctant, you're reluctantly one over. I, I'm just a skeptic. I'm such a skeptic of a lot of things. And so it's well, really you, hard eyes to. Eyes wide open, right? Eyes wide open yeah, when you're dealing yeah. with emerging markets, especially if you followed them from some time. The final question I'm going to give to Ralph, which is you were talking about liking emerging markets. He's asking, is that emerging markets X, South Africa, and China? Or would you include them? Someone else suggesting Brazil, India, Mexico, Indonesia 
Macro Butler saying BIMI remains the best play. So what, what do you constitute emerging markets? It's a really good question, especially with the concerns around China, which check the emerging market ETF, if you're playing it that way, that you are looking at, because a lot of them has, have China or had China as a big portion of their holdings. And, and that's why I hate ETFs to begin mm-hmm. with. I much rather do my own thing. But um, yeah, so to answer the question, um, I, I think the safest bet and I always go back to that because that doesn't mean the other things couldn't work. But the safest bet is that a resource-rich economy that has somewhat of a neutral geopolitical leadership, meaning not Russia, like Brazil, although it's Lula, I think it's way better uh, than the, the Russian leadership. Um, I think that you're going to have better odds. Um, now, the question about China specifically Look, recently seen the DBOC adding six, nearly $600 billion worth of to their balance sheet. That's basically, you know, talk about money printing. Yeah, that's what they just done in, in China. But in four months, that's the largest increase in four months we've seen in the history of their central bank. And so you have to pay attention to that, knowing that Chinese equities are so cheap. Would it surprise me if Chinese equities go up? Of course not. I have moral reasons to not buy Chinese stocks, and that's why I have issues with it. But that's just my opinion. But uh, would it surprise me? No, not at all. I'm actually, uh, I, I think I think as just taking my political views outside of this, I think it's a trade. I think it's definitely mm-hmm. a trade. Um, and um, it, yeah, I think it's definitely a, 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 an idea to Interesting. think about. Interesting. Tavi, we always love catching up with you. Thank you so much. We had a little bit of technical issues at the start, but we got through them and we're so glad we were able to. It's fantastic to hear all your thoughts. We always love that we can span the globe with you. Thanks for having me again, Maggie. Happy New Year. Yeah, same to you. Thanks so much. We'll be back tomorrow. If you have some more commodity questions, we're going to be on it again. Mish is with us, who, of course, always talks commodities in addition to everything else. So we'll get her, her thoughts about all of that as well. So get your questions ready. We'll see you then. In the meantime, take care and good luck out there. We hope you enjoyed this episode. At Real Vision, we arm you with the expert knowledge, time-efficient tools, and a powerful network to help you succeed on your financial journey. Get a taste of financial freedom with our free offer at realvision.com forward slash free.